am Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Bloors. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analysts Sandy Carielli and Brian Rozak to review the top security breaches from last year and learn about the newest security risks emerging this year. Welcome both. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. So as you two both know, one of the best ways to defend your organization against cyber attacks going forward is to know what type of attacks have happened in the recent past. So Sandy, I know that you coordinated a report looking back at the biggest attacks in 2022. Can you share some of the key findings from that research? Yeah, absolutely, Jen. And let's start with the numbers. We looked at the top 35 global breaches over 2022, and there were 1.2 billion records exposed in that. And those were global. There was a lot in the US, there were some in China, there were about four or five in Australia. So it really ran the gamut across across the world. And it ran the gamut across industries. What we found when we broke it down was that um, public sector and healthcare was the most common industry impacted by these breaches. 34% of the attacks were there, but we also saw a lot in media and entertainment and we saw a lot in financial services. So that really sort of, there wasn't one particular industry that really bore the brunt of it. There were a few that were high up there, but it, it wasn't one that really bore the brunt. So that was a really interesting thing to see right there. And then as we dove into it, we also started to realize that it wasn't just breaches of user accounts, which was what the top 35 were when we looked at them, but there were also a number of breaches of cryptocurrency providers or bridges. And so we broke that down as a separate point of analysis and found that the top nine global cryptocurrency breaches added up to a value of $2.7 billion. You know, what's interesting about the crypto attacks is I think people have this perception that crypto, because it's a blockchain based technology, is somehow very, very secure. Um, And I think these attacks, these spate of attacks shows that it's anything but. um, And then it's interesting, it seems like a lot of it happened at the same time that the the industry was suffering from all of this like fraud and different uh, crypto firms actually just going completely under. So it seems like the the entire industry just, the timing couldn't have been worse. Like the industry was already struggling and then they have these like spate of attacks. And it's like, if you wanted to find a way to make sure that people have lost their trust in an industry completely, <laughs> it's to have all kinds of fraud and, um, other kind of unethical activity than furthered by a whole bunch of breaches. <laughs> well, and one of the breaches that we saw where I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty as to whether it was a breach or some sort of insider attack was FTX, where there was a significant loss of $477 million worth of cryptocurrency. And they're still trying to figure out whether that was external or internal. So there was definitely some crossover there. But yes, you're right. And a lot of the breaches, if you actually dive into them stuff, they weren't due to flaws or issues with blockchain specifically. They were often flaws in 
application security or authentication flaws or insider attacks. So I think it's really telling when you look at these cryptocurrency breaches, you have to put all the same security controls on those that you put on all of your other applications. You can't assume that blockchain provides this magical layer of security that means you don't have to deal with anything else. And the real lesson for CISOs here is if their firms are thinking about partnering with cryptocurrency firms, they really need to do some due diligence here and understand what security controls are in place and how they can protect themselves in case there is a breach of one of those providers. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked about like the the different industries. Um, yeah, government isn't new, but when I looked through the list of the top 35, one thing that did strike me was it did seem that there was a focus more on local and state government. So maybe going after targets that were a little bit less prepared than, say, U.S. federal or a national government in, in another country. And even just like recently, like city of Dallas has been un has suffered three ransomware attacks. The one in May um, has taken them weeks to recover. City of Augusta in Georgia was another one. And then again, like in your list, it seems that there was a lot of like state, local or might have been like a smaller U.S. federal government agency. So was there any kind of shift in maybe going after the less prepared there was a little bit of that. The biggest breach that we actually saw last year was the Shanghai National Police in China, which was apparently one billion customer records. And that one's kind of an interesting one because they haven't actually confirmed anything. They've kind of denied that there, there was something there, but we've seen the attacker put a subset of the records on forums. So the attacker has offered proof that some information was compromised. That's the largest one out there. With respect to ransomware, and Brian, I'm going to let you comment on city of Dallas because that's near and dear to you. But what was really interesting about ransomware this year is it is still an issue, but because a lot of the ransomware is tied to some of the state-sponsored attacks, there is a shift in the perception of whether you should pay or not, and an expectation that maybe you're going to be less likely to do so, and that even if you did, you can no longer assume that the stolen information will just be lost or returned to you. Once the, once the breach has occurred, once you've been victimized by ransomware, you kind of have to assume it's going to be made public. There was one particularly interesting breach in that area with Optus where a lot of customer records were stolen and Optus itself was threatened with ransom for exposure of all of the credentials, all of the customer information. But the individual customers received ransom requests as well. And I don't think that's something we've seen before. That was kind of an interesting one. Yeah. It's, uh, in fact, that's almost like a triple ransomware where you, you, you pay the ransom and then you have to pay a second ransom so they don't publish information. And then I've actually seen some cases where the threat actors will go after your customers and demand ransoms from them so that they don't release their specific information. So it just keeps getting uglier and uglier uh, as we go. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. The, the, they haven't done it yet, but the Biden administration is strongly considering a ban on ransomware payments with an executive order. 
Yeah, they've talked about that. I, there is a a global counter ransomware initiative. Um, over 30 countries um, have joined together to to fight ransomware internationally, um, and they just spun off a a counter ransomware task force uh, that's being led by Australia. So this is clearly a global effort. It's something that a number of nations feel is is still a a real problem, which is why you know it made our top threats uh, for 2023 report. You know, you hear ransomware and you think, oh, I've been hearing about that for years. Well, it's still going strong. Um, it's not letting up. Um, we're seeing, just like in the case of my hometown here in Dallas, uh, targeting critical infrastructure, local governments. Um, Dallas been a little tight-lipped on on all the details of what's what's going on and, and what's happening behind the scenes. You know, but we're seeing interruptions, you know, court dates being pushed. Uh, people are unable to get licenses. People are, uh, you know, struggling to get basic services, like even checking out library books. Um, so it's it's been quite impactful. And as you mentioned, it's it's still going on. Is it shifting in any palpable way this year than previous years or same old, same old? The targeting of the critical infrastructure and particularly healthcare, you know, there was always sort of this, you know, honor among thieves agreement where threat actors, you know, they wouldn't target healthcare or hospitals. And if they did, they would quickly, you know, release the decryption key to get them back up and running. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, you're, I mean, I think the number of ransomware attacks against healthcare institutions has doubled like in the last five years. Um, and you're seeing them again, target universities and, and oil pipelines and, and other critical infrastructure um, because they realize if I can cause a major you know, physical incident, you're more likely to pay uh, to try to get those, those features and, and those services back up for the public. You talked a bit about the the number of compromised records and the and the industries and the global nature of it. Was there any other insight into like the specific types of attacks? Uh, we talked a little bit about what happened against the exchanges, but anything else about the attacks themselves? There were a couple of things that stood out. For one thing, after all these years, we're still seeing a number of attacks that were using stolen employee credentials. There was one where there was a compromised user credential. There was one where Lapsus purchased a stolen contact contractor credential to infiltrate Uber. So we're still seeing these stolen credentials, whether it was stolen from a previous breach and then someone's using the same password for an employee account, which, okay, they shouldn't do and there should be multi-factor, but in a lot of cases there isn't. So we still saw a number of stolen employee credentials we saw a couple of insider attacks as well. So it's interesting because it wasn't that it was new or exciting or innovative types of attacks. It's that some of the same things that have been plaguing us for years are still out there. Right. And as long as enterprises and organizations don't address them, they'll just they'll keep working. There'll always be that low hanging fruit for them to go after. Yeah. And the reality is, it would be great to say we're going to get rid of passwords, but we're not there yet. And while we move on that journey, there's still going to be that attack vector. So you know, in our report, we talked about having a layered approach to authentication, having some sort of multi-factor auth. But I'll tell you, 
for a lot of the cryptocurrency attacks that we saw last year, one of the problems was that the Discord channels that a lot of these users were communicating on, the admins credentials were compromised because they weren't using multi-factor. And then someone was using that admin account to basically fish the users in, in the channel and supposedly offer, hey, great new token available. And they click the link and their accounts were drained. And it, I think in our own data, too, we saw our own like quantitative survey data. We saw like double digit increase in the number of insider attacks as well. And you haven't seen like many companies necessarily implement the right kind of insider risk program or from a security perspective, like have they truly embraced the principles of zero trust, which is assume assume that you've been breached and look for the telltale signs that it's that it's already been been happening. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. And one of the things we definitely talked about when we looked at the data is the need to take a zero trust approach to insider risk and really control insider access and also making insider incidents part of the incident response plan and making sure that we're accounting for that. In the case of one of the biggest insider incidents last year, uh, and it was Cash App, you had a former employee terminated or left and they happened to take with them out the door sensitive information of 8 million users, names, account numbers, portfolio value, trading activity. So that's a case where there clearly weren't the controls and the zero trust approach to limit what they could access, but there also wasn't the response plan in place in terms of how to deal with high risk departing employees. With, with all the, the market disruption that this year with like restructuring and layoffs, and I'm also thinking about the companies that had to, you know, exit Russia on a dime and leave thousands of laptops and employees behind. I wonder if uh, we could go out on a limb and make a prediction that we'll see insider attacks go up another set of double digits in 2023 when we do the uh, year in review. Certainly a possibility. One of the things that got my attention when FTX imploded, frankly, was that they didn't even have a good list of who their employees were. Well, and the, the pandemic and working remotely has, has further complicated the whole insider threat activity because one of the most practical and, and helpful aspects of insider threat prevention is awareness, training, other employees speaking up when they, they see or witness strange things. And everybody's working well from home and in your living room and and you don't have that oversight and that that visual uh, cues that you used to have yeah yeah so it seems like in the year in review it's it does it is about getting the basics right so for a lot of companies it's we're not done with identity and access management you got to take a layered approach to authentication um i mean we do we do have some some companies that have gone to passwordless and have, have a lot of sophisticated solutions out there, but by and large, most companies are still doing passwords. Um, and then the next thing I'm hearing is the insider, the insider risk. I mean, yeah, if you if you don't even know who your employees are, um, <laughs> that's uh, that's problem problem number one. Um, and then I guess the last thing about ransomware attacks, like they're they're still here, they're still increasing. We look at the city of Dallas. Um, I mean, again, zero trust would help. There, it wouldn't prevent it necessarily, but it would limit the the blast radius, if you will, um, or the amount of like damage, and maybe help you detect it. And Brian, like you said, City of Dallas isn't being totally forthcoming, but 
I mean, I'm I'm also just wondering there is are they missing a bunch of basics, which is, hey, if I had solid backup and recovery, I'd be able to recover much more quickly. And you actually tested the ability to recover from your backups recently. Because that, that might be actually what's taking so long. Uh, it's like, oh, my God, where are our backups? Go find them. You know, it's it's a government institution. So, you know, budgets get get pushed out. They, you know, they have to go to vote. And, and so we've seen uh, technology enhancements and investments just constantly get pushed and pushed. And so they're dealing with, you know, outdated legacy technology, which makes it even harder to recover from these sophisticated attacks. Well, from legacy tech to the thing that's always in the headlines these days, uh, AI, I think that's maybe uh, your first big new threat that's in your body of research, Brian, question mark, probably period, full stop. That is definitely getting a lot of attention. In fact, um, one of our teammates, uh, Rowan, had a great uh, podcast uh, a few weeks ago about generative AI, uh, and he highlighted some some very interesting threat scenarios. Uh, in, our, in our top threats reports, we we zoned in on the aspect of you know poisoning uh, the data that's used by AI algorithms um, as a way to you know corrupt the results or allow you to attack companies um, because the AI algorithm isn't functioning properly. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an interesting use case uh, when it comes to, you know, dealing with some of this new technology. I think in the past, you know, we kind of vendors would say, oh, we use artificial intelligence. And we think, oh, that's cool. But then we kind of stop there and we don't really dig into, well, how do you use it? How do the models work? Where are you getting the information to train those models? And so, you know, security professionals need to get much more inquisitive uh, and start questioning uh, their vendors uh, a little deeper on some of this new technology so they can understand, you know, where could I potentially have some some bias in, in the results or some gaps? Yeah. With the, I mean, with AI, yeah, the, the poisoning is definitely a big, big deal because then, then it fundamentally undermines your trust in the AI itself. And, you know, for a lot of companies, like particularly generative AI is going to transform their their business models. Um, but I, I, you know, in the future, too, a lot of the large language models will be use case and industry specific and maybe even company specific. Is there still a risk to the data itself um, in the model? Um, is there a risk to your actual model? Could there be model theft, which then becomes like a trade secret kind of IP theft? Um, yeah, I think there's also like an integrity risk if I could get in and manipulate the model, right? Change the weighting factors, uh, change maybe the scoring mechanism, and then armed with that knowledge, I can then, you know, craft phishing emails and other attacks that will will take advantage of those modifications that I made. And that's why I, one of the big recommendations, um, certainly right now, is, you know, have another layer of review, a human review of the, of the results. And, you know, does it make sense? Do we think security teams are ready for understanding the threats to to AI? I mean, because you've got model theft, inference attacks, poisoning, prompt injection. I don't think so. I, you know, when I when I was a CISO, one of the hardest things was balancing, like we talked about just a few moments ago. How do I continue to consistently address the routine attacks? Uh, you know 
people compromising passwords and making sure vulnerabilities are patched. I can only carve out so much time to look at these new innovative attacks. Um, and that's a problem you know we see across the board with companies. So I don't think they're spending much time really digging into this. And many of them don't even have the opportunity to do that. Is, is it better then to have the security expertise embedded into, say, like a, a model ops and data ops team itself? Yes, I, I definitely where they have the the application expertise and the architecture data analysis expertise. Um, but then you run into the the challenge of now as a, as a CISO, I have to let go, right? I'm giving power and I'm giving decision-making authority to other groups and security is supposed to be my job, right? I'm supposed to yeah. control all that. And so you have that dynamic sometimes that come into play um, in these organizations. I wonder, Brian, if we can take some of the security champions models that I've written about, that Janan Budge has written about in terms of having individuals embedded on teams who are first and foremost developers or perhaps first and foremost AI engineers, but are trained up in security. If we can extend that model to some of these AI teams so that we have more of the security expertise locally and bring some of security's credibility into the teams, so that you don't have to deal with as much of that. That is definitely the best approach. Um, and then what I've seen over time is those same individuals, as they start to learn about security principles and, and other aspects of cybersecurity, they say, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I wouldn't mind doing this full time. And now you've got people who can rotate into the cybersecurity team and bring that, that tribal knowledge with them. Uh, and it sets up a great, uh, a great flow of talent within your organization. Another, um, kind of future threat or potentially a threat that we're predicting for for this year and next year it it's sort of the basics but it's it's cloud right i mean it's interesting in our security survey we asked you know which of the following emerging tech was keeping you up at night and actually they, they did they did indicate ai was one of them um but then they they also indicated that cloud was one of them and i, I remember uh, myself and some of the other research directors were you know we're looking at the data and we're like cloud cloud's already here folks 45 percent of your workloads are already in the cloud <laughs> you know you talk to your counterparts over in uh, infrastructure and operations and they're they're running around going we're cloud first <laughs> you know every new app that we deploy is going to be developed using cloud native technologies so that's it. So at first it struck me like, hey, hey, security team, here's another scenario where you might be like two to three years behind where your colleagues are at. Um, or is it more, again, it's it's the evolution of cloud and like where we're at, right? You know, when people started migrating to the cloud, it was like, you know, come on, people, like secure your S3 buckets. What are you doing? Um, so are we past that? And it's more about, okay, 45% of your workloads have moved to the cloud and we really haven't gotten our arms around the kinds of uh, security vulnerabilities and problems and challenges that that really introduces. Well, I think that's why external attack surface management is so popular right now is because people don't have their arms around their cloud environments. Uh, you know, it's all about fast adoption and, you know, very fluid nature of spinning up workloads and, and buckets and, and dropping them when you don't need them. That makes governance and auditing a real challenge. Right. It's not like there's just some static server sitting there that you can repeatedly scan over and over. 
Um, and so even back to the model, you know, we were talking about earlier, Sandy, of, you know, do you have champions embedded in those, those cloud deployment models and in those application developers in the cloud uh, that can be your security advocate um, and actually build some of that security uh, into the infrastructure as code so that as new things are, are created, security is already baked into that baseline. Yeah, I like that, Brian. I think that's a great point. And the other thing I've noticed with respect to cloud, when we look at the data, just how many organizations are multi-cloud and how much that ups the complexity. And we're seeing a lot of the security tooling extend to support hybrid cloud and multi-cloud, but I would say that's probably kind of new over the past two to three years, and it's still evolving. So figuring out if you have a multi-cloud deployment how you're going to have consistent view on that from a security standpoint. I wish I could say that was easy peasy, but we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, and it's also threat modeling attacks, not directly against your cloud environment, but cascading from your traditional corporate IT environment into the cloud. I mean, how many times have we seen that with ransomware attacks where, you know, it's, you thought, well, my data's in the cloud, so phew, it's safe. Well. If I can get to my data in the cloud from my laptop, so can the ransomware. Um, and I think companies just sometimes have that that false sense of, of security, or they didn't they didn't think about that attack angle. Um, and that's just something that comes with experience, and hopefully not painful experience. But you learn from somebody else's mistake and not not your own. Yeah, and the I guess the last area that, or the, at least the third kind of like threat that's on the horizon is the the just the, the the impact of the current geopolitical environment. I mean, just in, in general, there's enormous amounts of geopolitical tensions, the ongoing war in Ukraine, you know, different nations taking different sides. Um, so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And, you know, we've always had politics. And so you may be thinking, well, why wasn't this a, an established threat versus an emerging threat? Uh, but what we're seeing is, countries are starting to escalate their actions in cyberspace. Uh, and so they're using cyber attacks as leverage to gain, you know, political and economic leverage and negotiations, um, or even to gain um, control of resources, you know, oil, water, food. Uh, we've seen attacks on supply chain. Um, again, all of that is designed to exert your leverage. Um, and there's that sense of, you know, does anybody really get hurt? It's not like I'm, you know, firing a missile or something like that to try to get my point across um, in some of these attacks. So as as CISOs and, and as security leaders, many times we just, ah, I don't need to worry about that, right? I, that's that's a political thing. That's, that's outside my, my worry uh, sphere, but it's not. It, it is something you do have to pay attention to. You do have to talk to your executives about, you know, what could be that collateral damage? How could that spill over uh, and affect your uh, global operations um, is something that is not always easy to talk about, um, but it's something that, that needs to be done. Brian, if I can add on to that, if we go back to the ransomware discussion and the question of whether to pay or not, one of the geopolitical impacts that we're seeing in here is the realization that a lot of the gangs and groups that are running these ransomware attacks and are potentially collecting the ransoms 
are state affiliated. And so the question of whether paying a ransom is potentially funding war or funding you know, an enemy combatant is one of the reasons that there's a lot more pressure not to pay now. Yeah, funding corporate espionage and other other nation state activities. Yeah, yeah, and I think with the geopolitical risks, I, I think the thing to emphasize. I mean, there's there's the obvious industries, right? It's um, your critical infrastructure, it's financial services, but it, it's like to your point, it could be other industries as well. Just because part of what another nation state might be doing is um, trying to show, trying to sow um, some disarray and fear as well. So I, I think that's an important point is it's more than just like critical infrastructure and government. The other industries do need to think about the, the geopolitical and nation state angle. Absolutely. They're targeting private sector firms too. You can't assume that because you're you know, telecom or a media company or something like that, that you're immune. Yeah. And how often do attacks and malware that maybe started out very targeted for a political issue then get out in the in the public domain and then they get commoditized and used against everybody. So the earlier you can understand those types of attacks, uh, the better you can be prepared against them. So knowing we we had five top threats in your in your research, I'm sure there were a few that were debated and obviously did not make make the list. So uh, what were those items that were debated but not included in this year's uh, report? Probably the the one we spent the most time discussing was, you know, the the impact of the current economic downturn and and all the uncertainty. You know, how would that impact, you know, not only threat actors and, and attacks, but also your internal you know, resources and security budgets and ability to deploy new technology. Um, and you know, we've published a, a number of of research related to that very specific topic. Um, and then in talking to uh, other cybersecurity leaders, cybersecurity hasn't been quite as impacted as it had in prior downturns. You know, we're still seeing uh, customers, you know, they still have job openings. They're still uh, publishing uh, new openings. There's, they're buying technology. You know, they may be taking a little bit longer to vet uh, solutions and stuff like that, uh, but we're not seeing the wholesale, you know, cutting of, of budgets and, and reducing of headcount across the board uh, in cybersecurity teams. Cindy, I mean, what do you think about the fact that the only way the industry gets better is a little, it's a little bit like, you know, National Transportation Safety Board. The only way you get better is to like look at what happened and learn from each other. And I think there was a hesitancy in the past to like talk about breaches um, and do that kind of like learning. Um, and we're certainly now trying to like victim shame. It's, it's really all about all the learnings. I like that, actually. I, th I think that's a good point that this is the first time in a few years we've done the lessons learned report. I think we had done it four or five years ago, and we brought it back because we felt as though there was so much going on that security leaders could learn. And so there was a lot of value in that. And if you look at the things that we pulled out of it in terms of geopolitical tensions, in terms of ransomware, in terms of cryptocurrency theft, in terms of insider threats and identity-based and password theft types of attacks continuing to be low-hanging fruit, I think it offered a nice range of lessons combination of things that have been issues for years and things that are a little bit newer to the table. And I think that 
that has a lot of value. So it'll be really interesting and helpful to look at this next year and say, is ransomware still an issue? Well, Brian, you would say probably true. Are geopolitical threats going to continue? Yeah, we'll probably see that one on the list again next year. We'll probably see password theft again on the list next year. But what else will we see? What else will stand out as new lessons learned? And will we have actually taken any of the lessons this year and really taken them to heart or not? Yeah, and I think the top thrust report shows that you know security leaders have to strike a very delicate balance between not losing focus on the issues and challenges and threats that have been plaguing them you know since their career started but also carving out some time to look at what are those new threats uh, coming down the road uh, with new technologies that you don't want to be blindsided you want to try to get out in front of that uh, if you can uh, and so being able to report on you know which which prior threats you know are still top of mind and and where should you try to spend some additional time uh, to get ahead of it i think is really key in these reports that we'll keep doing all right well thank you both for joining us today thank you that was fun thank you if you like what you heard today subscribe to forester's what it means podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or your favorite podcast player to continue the conversation follow forester on twitter Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.